been like 10 years. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. All right, you ready? What right does a man have to rule another? I think it's so bad, ladies and gentlemen, that if I invented a particular device, pretty soon I'd have to get a permit from the state to use my own product. And pay taxes. You cannot get rid of tyranny by fighting tyrants for a very good reason. Tyranny doesn't exist independently of something else, which is more important. There is a something else which has to be defined before you know what tyranny is. What's that? It's opposite. Freedom. They are not independent of each other. These are not two different things which are at opposite ends of the pole. They are one thing of which the one is a negation of the other. They say, why don't you get into politics? I mean, why don't you try to run for office? Then you can create change. You don't create change when you're in office. They tell you what to do. This is how we create change, by getting this information out to the masses. We can do more in one year than someone can sitting in office for eight years. Together they can break us, we are strong. Divide us and the road leads to destruction. Don't you fall a prey to Babylon. They want to pull us all in different directions. So they take you from the root and teach you their own truth. Open up your mind, please don't you be so blind. I'm not in it for the fame, I'm in it for the love. When it's all said and done, we're more than blood. That's right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. It is We Are Not Cattle Radio. I'm your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live somewhere in Georgia. Uh, Josh Wiley of statelesshomesteading.com. Josh, what's going on? Uh, Not a whole lot, Jake, except for this podcast. How about yourself? It's about it, man. Just uh, fighting a cold, as I like to refer to it, as 70% September. If you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You will be in perpetual 70% mode from now until probably Christmas. So, good luck, everyone. Stay away from the little Petri dishes out there. <laughs> so, anyway. Um, Do your part to build their immune system, Jake. Because the, alter- the alternative is, uh, is a needle. Oh, that's true, and I've got um, I got some information for you on that if you so desire to shoot your kids up with uh, um, flu shots this year. Good stuff. You want to lead? You want to lead with that? I don't know. No, you know what? Something really odd happened the other day. I uh, I got an email, and um, evidently Alex Jones has been listening to our section on the Alex Jones NLP, and he left me the voicemail. Kiss my ass and get on your knees before me while I piss in your face. <laughs> So, That's hysterical. So I was pretty upset. I was pretty shaken. I didn't even know if I'm going to do it, but uh, I think we're going to have to buckle down and do one more segment. It sounded like Alex was fired up right there. You don't say, but he doesn't drink on air anymore. <laughs> That's the good news. He used to get fired up. I'll get. I might take a shot right before I get on air just to get real fired up and fight the That's globalists. A, That's a classic uh, Alex Jones bit. Although, I mean, I have it on good authority, especially having lived in Austin for a while and palled around with some activists, uh, one of whom uh, Alex Jones once called COINTELPRO. Oh, that's quality. Yeah, John and Kathy Bush. But (laughs) I I also have it on fairly good authority that Alex Alex gets trashed and walks the the streets at night with uh, Leanne and her McAdoos. So... That sounds that sounds great. Well, <laughs> very I, I, it's very Christian. It's very it's very tough to um, to do the segment now, and I'm really I'm really having to take one for the team because 
it's a tough show to listen to now. I'm not going to lie. I'm not oh, I don't doubt it. Oh, Man, I it's still, tough. I, I wanna, I wanna find that clip where he, uh, he says, "I'm sick of telling. I'm sick of spinning your lies for you. I'm sick of fighting for the globalists." It's like a hilarious little Freudian slip he does. Oh, nice, yeah. nice. Well, he is definitely fighting for the neocons. I've got a pretty good clip from. That's what we'll get into in the uh, Alex Jones NLP segment. So, who isn't the, fighting for the neocons oh, anymore, man? Amen, amen. So, just for you guys that are new to the show, we did pick up a lot of new listeners because we're actually producing content at a regular basis now. Oh my God, what happened? It's crazy how that works. It is amazing. So, uh, thank you so much for the support. Um, we love seeing people that will come through. Uh, just uh, getting linked off of a page or an interview or something like that, finding our show and saying, wow, this is really entertaining. So that's uh, thumbs up, kudos. And uh, if you want to send us any info, we are. I'm going to start requesting info from listeners. We do have a pretty decent fan base now. So um, if you see any articles that you would like to see us look at, uh, especially anything regarding uh, vaccinations, I would like to see those uh, because I'm trying to put a segment together each podcast that we're doing during flu season and show you the um, the sales pitch and some of the reality of the situation that can happen. So that's just my ask for the audience. Used a very Silicon Valley term right there. That was a very salesy thing for me to do. An Indeed ask. it was, but you can't break your programming, Jake. You know, it's so ingrained <laughs> into you at this point. Oh, I got a really good clip from um, No Agenda had a... a I guess a quasi whistleblower on their show. It was interesting. So um, in what in what field? Uh, academia, some place that you and I absolutely love, and it'll get you very fired up to go back to school and learn, Josh. I promise. So anyway, well let's um let's kick it off, man. It's flu season, so we got to get our um, we got to get our PR in. There was um something interesting that I found not as interesting as the um as the targeted uh, vaccine for old people, you know, the people that have already hit their social security and man, it'd be kind of convenient for you guys to get sick, but never mind, we can't think like that because then we not would... if you're allergic not if you're allergic to latex though that's okay yeah that is okay because it's probably just you know just a rash or a bump or something so would you like the uh would the would you like the pr josh or would you like the uh the possible outcome of the flu vaccine um you know what i'm all about possibility so let's go with those outcomes jake okie dokie here we go Paralyzed and barely able to speak, a 12-year-old girl's parents blaming an annual flu shot on their daughter's rare condition. Little Mary Sue has been bedridden for the past two years, and now tonight her parents tell ABC Action News reporter Jacqueline Glaze why they believe their daughter's recovery is dependent on your help. Okay, go ahead. Holy shit, is that girl's name actually Mary Sue? I think so. This is, uh, this is from last this is year. Like, this, this is, is like from such last an I- From last flu season? Uh, yeah, last flu season. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's just uh, it's just such an uh, idyllic name, such an Americana story. It must end in tragedy. It it does, and it's um, it's interesting because the disease or quote unquote affliction. I'll, I'll tell you after the clip. Here we go. Driving by the outside of the Grivna's Tampa home, you don't see that just beyond the front picture window is a little girl fighting to get back to herself. Mary Sue went from being, an, like I said, a normal nine year old to basically a newborn child. To understand why 12-year-old Mary Sue is confined to a hospital bed and completely dependent, you have to go back to November 20th of 2013. Mary Sue had gotten her annual flu shot. Six days later, she couldn't get out of bed. 
and her family rushed her to St. Joe's. When I saw her in ICU, the only way I knew that she knew that we were there was her breathing changing. Doctors eventually diagnosed Mary Sue with acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, or ADEM, a rare autoimmune disease marked by a sudden widespread inflammation of the brain and spinal cord. Which has happened in two other cases that I have documented or at least found a documentation for after getting the flu vaccine. Safe and effective, everybody. About 8 out of 1 million people are impacted every year, according to the Cleveland Clinic, usually caused by a viral infection, but has been linked to some vaccinations. Mentally, she's all there. She understands everything you say to her. Understanding, but very limited in how she can respond. Mary Sue can say just about 10 words, including mommy and daddy. Can you sing for our friends? La, 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 la. Doctors can't definitively say if the flu shot led to Mary Sue's condition. It's also not clear if she'll ever fully recover, but her family believes her recovery could be easier. Their home is so small, Mary Sue's hospital bed will not fit into her bedroom. Instead, she sleeps in the family's living room. With her wheelchair no longer fitting her growing body, Mary Sue's father must carry her from room to room. Ready? Despite both of Mary Sue's parents having their own health issues, they refuse to put Mary Sue in a care facility. She's everything. Right, Mary Sue? Mommy loves you, right? You want to be home with Mommy, right? Daddy. And Daddy. In Tampa, Jacqueline Inglace, ABC Action News. So there's your possible outcome for people that uh, choose to take the flu shot. And just understand that there are 30,000 people that die a year from flu. Yes, I understand that. And there is a high percentage of those people that are uh, already elderly or already have some other kind of sickness. Um, the odds of them guessing the flu shot, which they have never done, the closest they've come this year, Josh, is 48%. Good job, guys. You got almost halfway there so it's almost as good as flipping a coin everybody wow but when safe and I, effective you know a few years ago i was looking at statistics for the state of michigan's uh infectious disease report and i was looking in january of like it was like 2014 or 2015 but they had two columns for flu one was influenza a standard flu and the other was uh flu-like virus Yes. Nondescript flu-like virus. There were like, something like 10 or 12 confirmed cases in that previous year of actual flu and something like, you know, 30, 40,000 of flu-like viruses. And it's like, at some point, you have to, is it, is it too conspiratorial to ask if shooting people with inane and innocuous weird versions of the flu are actually causing it to mutate much faster than it would naturally and you know, infect us all with, with super flu bugs. Is that crazy, Jake? Or is that just common fucking sense? People? Oh. First one of the night. So those of you new to the broadcast, Josh is the foul mouth millennial. And, well, I uh, get worked up about it. Well, just, wait, hey, we, we, we're, we're lovers of free speech and free association here, and <laughs> I just think that your you know, vernacular deserves a coin every once in a while. That's all I'm saying. I'd like to think I'm otherwise eloquent, but yeah, occasionally the four-letter words do come out. Uh, it's a gener- it, it is a generational gap thing, largely, I think. But vaccines in particular, I mean, that's such a tragic story. Of course. And, and it's, it's the, an identical case to what, almost nearly identical to what you hear from kids who've gotten the MMR. Yep. Where their parents say, you know, they came home from the hospital and it was just a different child yep. almost, almost immediately. 
you know, but doctors can't confirm whether or not the shot is directly related to my kid turning into a vegetable, you know, six hours later. No, uh, no, no, no. And then, you know, we got the guy from the last, uh, the last podcast that was, he, let's see, I'll, I'll see if I can pull it up at the end of the, the company line, man. Hold on, I'll, I'll pull, see if I can pull it up. Go ahead. Keep going. I was just going to say, the, these are all autoimmune disorders. All of these, you know, all of these side effects, and some of them it varies, you know, whether or not it's a, it's it's a mild case like you know, seasonal allergies or it's something much broader. But I can tell a you, a new study. You know, no, go ahead. I'm just going to fast an, forward. It's an, it's not natural for the human body, uh, human body's immune system to attack itself, especially in the in the scale that we're seeing. I mean, I was round one of the uh, MMR, the three shot MMR with the more aggressive dosage. Because I was born in 1992, which is the year they shifted over. Yep. And, I mean, I have horrific autoimmune disorders that I will probably live with for the rest of my life. Uh, allergies and most, most acutely asthma, which is, it went away for many years and came back in early adulthood with a vengeance. And my little sister has a, has a rare form of lupus. Nice. Another another very strange auto, strange and exotic autoimmune disorder that you know typically should not be present in a healthy twenty something, but nevertheless here we are. So this is if there are parents out there, I highly doubt there are parents that listen to this show that aren't that are still on the fence about this. But you just have to have to consider whether or not it's it's worth the risk that your kid might get flu or rubella. Or any of these other, you know, either common or exotic diseases, right. uh, ver- versus prolong giving them a prolonged life of suffering because that's your choice. It really is. Well, that's what we found through our research is that the majority of these um, these illnesses or whatever that our kids are succumb to or uh, can come in contact with, uh, you drastically reduce your kids. Um, way to get in contact with these you know uh flus and other viruses if you don't take your kid out in public a lot so therefore if you're raising your child rather than somebody else raising your child they're not going to come in contact with a bunch of other people so you can kind of narrow the field down that way and then the majority of these diseases if they do get them at a young age um that's the only time where they're very susceptible to be very severe just because the child's so young but once they're over the age of six months, the the majority of the illnesses we were reading, it said that, oh, it'll show up and it'll look like the flu and then you'll get your kid um, or it'll look like, a, it'll look like a, they just get sick. You give them antibiotics and they get better. And you would never know that they had some kind of exotic disease or anything like that. It was just, oh, my kid's sick. We give them this. Oh, it turned out that they had you know some kind of exotic disease we got a shot for, but, you know. Either way, I don't really like treating my kid with with antibiotics, but if I'm going to take a choice of something that, like you said, could have dramatic lifelong effects for the mental well-being of my child, I'm I'm going to roll the dice in some in some instances. But here, yeah. wait, wait, we got to wait for the company line. Let's see if we can find it. I might have to clip this. Hold on. A lot of extensive studies previously finding that the flu vaccine during pregnancy is both safe and effective. There we Dr. go. Yes, sir. All right, so it's at 17. Oh, so long as it's safe and effective. Oh, here it is right here, man. I think he's going to say it. He's got a white coat on, so he probably knows what he's going Finding that the flu vaccine during pregnancy is both safe and effective. It's- Dr. John LaBook, thanks very much. Thank you, John. Thanks to you. Back to you in the studio, Dave. What's going on? Cut to cut to Dave. I'm getting mine right now. Oh, speaking of, <laughs> speaking of going to the studio... Uh, let's uh let's see how let's see how CNN presents the idea of getting a flu shot. Here we go. 
Don't fall victim to the flu this season. Get the vaccine. Quit being a victim, Josh. We've got seven... Oh my god. Already catering to an audience. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was I, I have a, a somewhat morose question for you as a parent related to these vaccines, but that can wait. Okay. Should we fire the CNN clip then? All right, here we go. Things you need to know to combat winter's worst. What is the flu? The flu is a viral infection. It's Oh, sorry. Um, this is also the person from the Cleveland Clinic. Evidently, the Cleveland Clinic does tons of PR for the flu shot, people. The They're flu everywhere. Is a viral infection. Oh, and, and I also, also, talkers hey, too. Josh. Um, also, if you're CNN, do you get a um, do you get a sci- do you get a scientist, a doctor, or a pharmacist to promote the flu vaccine? All three, man. No, no, no. Just, you can only choose one. What do you get? Uh, mm, definitely a scientist. No, it's got to have it's got to have science in the title, man, or else the people aren't going to buy it. No, you actually get a pharmacist to promote the flu shot. Not a doctor. This is a pharmacist in a white coat, and I bet nobody catches that it says aren't, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> what what what's 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 the difference anymore? Amen. I mean, unless you're unless you're like a trauma surgeon, you're all just drug dealers. Yeah, uh, there we go. Different than a bacterial infection. That's important to state the difference. That's why when you have the flu, you can't go to the doctor and they just give you an antibiotic and you feel all better. Yeah, the vocal fry and the up talking from this girl no. drive me nuts. Yeah, you could you could go to an herbologist and, a, and get an antiviral, but you know for some reason modern medicine, in all of its wonders, has not invented an effective antiviral. But there are plenty of herbs that'll wipe these things out on a fairly consistent basis. Uh, if anyone's interested, they can check out a form a Chinese formula called VSC VS hyphen C wipe out pretty much anything. I'm not a doctor. This isn't medical advice, but uh, then again, neither is this woman. So there we go. Yeah, she's not a doctor either. Good call. That's millennial coin. Definitely. Here we go. What are the symptoms of the flu? When you have a viral infection, your body is attacking that virus, um, and it's causing you to have symptoms, whether it be a high fever, feeling very lethargic, um, possibly um, an upset stomach. Why does she keep going uphill? Vomiting, headaches, um, muscle aches, things of that nature can all be occurring um, that are showing that you have symptoms of the flu. Can the flu be prevented? Flu vaccines are created every year for our population. It's evaluated. All right, so this, there's. I'm pretty sure that's a yes or no question. Can the um, flu be prevented? Hold on. Let's see if she. I haven't heard a yes or no yet. Let's see what. Let's see how it goes. By what strain they think is going to affect the population. So getting a flu shot every year improves the immunity in your system to what flu virus might be out there. Okay, so is that a yes? It sounded kind of like a yes, maybe a yes, no? I don't I don't know what the right answer, Jake, is. All I know is I'm loving this groovy acoustic guitar in the background. Oh, it's, and you should see the slides they have, it, the slide deck they have with it, too. It's beautiful. Please, please, please tell me it's like cartoon characters on the slides. No, it's just, um, it's, it's well, it's a cartoon needle. So oh, the, perfect. Yeah, the needle cannot, it's, it's, like an, it's like an icon. It looks like an emoji, actually. Well, I mean, okay, if there's smiley emojis and they're playing the happy guitar song, then what could go wrong, Jake? What, what happens when I get the flu shot? So walking in sometime between October and May, asking to get a flu shot, that's step one. Uh, the pharmacist is typically going to ask you to fill out some paperwork, a little questionnaire to help make sure that we're providing the right vaccine for you. 
Meaning that we're not liable if we kill your dumbass. And that it's safe for us to give that vaccine to you. What if I don't wait a full year in between flu shots? Oh, no. We think of it just in terms of flu season. So as early as the flu shot becomes available, you want to get it. You don't have to wait a full year to actually get your next vaccine. Can someone experience an adverse reaction to the flu shot? Most commonly, it's just local irritation. So redness, swelling, discomfort at the injection site. Um, Occasionally, someone can develop a low-grade fever or kind of a feeling of unwell. Um, Have you ever felt unwell, Josh? Uh, I got fucking shingles when I took that damn shot. So, yeah, I felt pretty unwell. A lot of people think that I got the flu shot and now I have the flu. Fortunately, the flu shot cannot cause the flu. Um, It's just your body starting to build up immunity to it. Um, And so a few days after, you might feel that way, but it's not going to develop into the flu. How do I know if I'm having an allergic reaction to the flu shot? When you're getting your vaccine, typically the pharmacist or doctor's office will ask to monitor you for 10 to 15 minutes after getting the vaccine. We're looking for things like difficulty breathing, swelling of the lips, tongue or face, um, paleness, um, something like that that might make us believe that you're having an allergic reaction to the vaccine. Getting a flu shot every year is important. It helps reduce the likelihood that one can obtain the flu and also helps prevent from spreading the flu. Man, good work, everybody. Good work, CNN. And they kicked the guitar up like a couple of extra happy notes for you at the end. They oh, kicked the rhythm it. up. Yeah, it was beautiful. I liked it. It, it was definitely con- built my confidence in the product. <laughs> they were. They were complete. That was a, that was, uh, I, I guess it's a considered. Assault. It's not like a, it's like a native ad almost for the drug companies. Oh, it's, yeah, but our news networks wouldn't do that to us, no, would they? No, no. All right, for those of you that that um, are new to that kind of lingo, a, a native advertisement is is an, an a, I don't know, sometimes they're paid for, sometimes they aren't. It's news that masquerades as an advertisement. Advertisement that masquerades as news, sir. Oh, or I don't know. Yeah, either way. Either way. <laughs> yeah, but same kind of thing. Uh, it's like when you um, when you read some of the uh, luxury magazines or you read like a golf digest magazine or something like that and you get to a like a three page um it's like a highlight i guess of a particular course or something and it says advertisement at the bottom it's the same kind of thing that's that's what a native ad is so cnn's pumping them out man good work good work everybody so here's my question Jake. sure if they have if they have to pick you know a a subset of whatever random flu virus is going to strike the population this mm-hmm. year. And vaccines are safe and effective. Yeah. Then why, why can't they just make a cocktail of hundreds or thousands of, of, of different possibilities and just shoot that into your kid? Maybe they'll get there, man. The population isn't stupid enough yet. I don't think I they're w- dumbed down <laughs> enough. I wonder. Maybe, maybe there's like a health concern there or something. Uh, that's quite possible. Uh, right. Interesting. Although my morose question... Yeah, for, I can't answer yeah, this. Go ahead. I'm not a parent. Okay, go ahead. You are. Yep. So if you had the choice, mm-hmm. I've thought about this, between your child dying mm-hmm. or your child becoming a retard vegetable who you have to raise for the rest of its existence and then you would die and you wouldn't know how it would be cared for, which would you rather have? Um, it's tough because I've never experienced that, but I would, I would want my kid to live. No matter what situation it was. So. Really? Yeah. I mean, I don't know because I'm not in that situation. So it's kind of a, it's a, that's a very, 
It's a very tough question to answer because it is. Yeah, I couldn't. I can't abstractly think about that. Once you have kids, you'll kind of you'll kind of understand that you don't want to think about them in that state ever. So, well, in in that in that instance, then mm-hmm. why why not get the MMR vaccine? Ah, <laughs> uh, touche, touche. You know what time? I think it is, Josh. I think it is. Oh, whoa! Hold on. Got to We got to cut. I'm going to cut this. I gotta find the Alex Jones NLP music. Where's my music? We could just use that acoustic guitar segment again. <laughs> God. Oh God! What the hell? I, I thought he, I had he, it. He, he must have hacked into your system while he's leaving he you that did. voicemail. He did. He's good. He's good friends with Julian, don't you know? Oh, here it is. Here it is. Theme music. I need to get added to the desktop. All right. You know what time it is, Josh. My favorite time. Absolutely. It's time to play the game, everybody. That's right. The game that made Josh Wiley famous and 55 SDR strong. The Alex Jones NLP Game Show. Thank you so much for joining us, Josh. That's like uh, 50 bucks, though. (laughs) It just depends on what the conversion rate is at this time, too. It's pretty bad. So here, all right. So I have two clips for you. Only one of which can earn you cash. Can I just earn Bitcoin, man? <laughs> you actually want money. Look at you. All right. Um, you've got the Korea escalation clip, and you also have. Here is you have a question to earn some SDRs. So which would you prefer? crazy kim i mean he, this man is insane He's, we're on the brink of war right now jake we gotta rally the troops give gotta, it to me all right rallying the troops here we go said i agree with you in in practice and function but even people like joel skousen that was agreed with you about not having a war uh you know in the last five or six saying they were frauds he says when you get down to north korea now they do have nuclear weapons they are being backed by china they are a real threat they are firing missiles uh, right over Japan. Uh, they can test weapons, but, but, but doing it in this way, threatening preemptively to blow up the U.S. to say it's inevitable, that's pointing a gun at us and really next level bravada. It's incredible chicken. And then you have the Clintons, as you know, transferring the reactors, transferring the missiles in the mid nineties that you and others criticized when you first got back into Congress. And so there's a lot of blame going around here. And then you just have the horrible little communist third generation dictator fat off the blood of his little skinny citizens i agree with you the poor you know korean uh, north korean slaves and their children i feel sorry for them i don't want to have to you know nuke the dmz uh but if they do strike us first i think they may be crazy enough to do it uh then it's going to take a, 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 a major commitment to make sure they can't counter respond i you're, you're buying you're buying into all the garbage that's passed out there by the deep state and neoconservatives and and the media my- That's right, Ron Paul. Get him. So there it is, man. The sales pitch. You got to, man, we got to make sure that they can't retaliate. Got oh, to. We, we got to call him Fat Little Kim, you know. Of course, you have to you have to denigrate his physical appearance. How else do you win if if not by ad hominem? <laughs> Amen. All right. So let's- well, we, ta- we talked about that the other night, though, you know, that he's he's just trying to mimic the appearance of his grandfather, Kim Il-sung. Yeah, I think it's, it's a very it's a very politi- pointed political move, which which goes to show you that ugh, 
They're not actually insane. They're rational actors. I mean, I think that it's a despotic and terrible regime, but people need to understand that North Korea, for the first time in its history, people have ready access to outside media. For the first time in 20 years, they know now, for example, that they are the poor Korea. They know that China and South Korea are, are wealthy nations and there's abundance there. That's a, that's a completely different mindset for a populace to know that the world outside isn't the place that they've been propagandized to think it is. So maybe for the first time where we could see effective change in North Korea, they want to blow it up. Absolutely. So, come Abs- on, people. Absolutely. We just blow it all hell. All right. So now we got your, um, you've got, um, you got an opportunity to win some, some coin. Do you want to win some coin? I got to pay my rent, man. All right. Well, I can't help you with that. All right. So in Alex's next clip, Alex says that once the Pentagon calls you blank, it's over. The, uh, the first answer, or excuse me, once the Pentagon calls for blank, it's over. The answers are... Once the Pentagon calls for regime change, it's over. Once the Pentagon calls you crazy, it's over. Once the Pentagon says that you need new shoes, it's over. Or once the Pentagon says that your debt is too high, it's over. What's your answer, Josh? Mm. I want to go with regime change just because I don't know. Does Alex care about monetary issues anymore? Let's find out. And... Kim Jong-un better understand, when they start calling you a madman at the Pentagon, that means you're about to get killed, buddy. Oh, that is too bad. Is madman an option? No. Uh, Crazy. I think crazy was an option. I would have gone with crazy. I must not have heard it. What were my my choices then? I might have blown the segment. Is is regime change, Mm -hmm. uh, new shoes. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, your debt is too high. And I think crazy was the second one. Was it? In my, I just must not have heard it. That, oh, would, that was an obvious one. I would have picked crazy. Yeah, I think you, I think you botched that one. That's okay, though. You know, there's always, there's always more chances to win SDRs down the road, Josh. So, uh, I guess that's it. Thank you for playing. I, like I said, I cannot stomach much of this stuff anymore. I'll have a longer segment for you guys next time, but that is it. Thank you to our contestant, Josh Wiley. Once again... The reason that I do this segment, and I say it every time, Alex Jones woke me up in the Liberty and then shoved Liberty in a trash can and lit it on fire and did a happy dance around it. So that's why I'm a little bitter. Other than that, everything's good. All right, man. So I think it might be time for us to listen to your Apple Bomb clip. Josh sent me over a clip. Do you want to go ahead and set it up? Oh, sure. I mean, anything to get the sound of Alex out of my ears at this point is a, is a welcome. That's all right, man. Listen, so- he's a blood-sucking dictator. So I think maybe we should go into what's happened to Jacob Applebaum after this clip. Sure. Uh, but just to set this one up, he's at a conference in South Africa. He's talking about NSA surveillance, but uh, he's really getting into uh, how the GCHQ does full data collection. Uh, and he, he has a very pertinent political point that Jake and I harp on often. So uh, that's, that's the setup, man. So that does happen in real time. But the more likely thing, even though that happens to thousands and thousands of people, the more likely thing is that the information is put into a really large database. And that database is a whole bunch of databases, actually. 
In some cases, you have a real-time full content buffer of the entire Internet. So in the case of Tempora around the United Kingdom, they have something like 72 hours to a week of buffer time, though I'm not completely sure about what their current capacity is. But that means every byte that flows in and out of the United Kingdom is in that buffer. Every byte. It's not metadata and content separated. You know, don't think about it like that. But with XKeyscore, the, the metadata is actually 30 days or more, and the content depends on the power, storage, and cooling capacity of that system, whichever system it is. Now, for Tempora, that's an extreme version, and that's because the GCHQ is even more lawless than the NSA, actually, which makes sense. They're a monarchy, actually a theocracy, um, so I kind of expect worse from them, actually. And I'm glad to see that the U.S. is not the biggest asshole on the planet, for once, right? I mean, it's always, it's always nice when there's a bigger asshole, and uh, that's the British uh, Secret Services. So um, just in case there's any doubt about that, um, they really, like, the gloves are totally off. You know, they don't have a constitution in the sense that the U.S. has a constitution. And there's a reason we shot the British. It's too bad that we teamed up with them. Uh, to exploit that, because part of the idea of a constitutional republic is that you, you, you don't do that kind of stuff, and that you believe in individualized, particularized suspicion. Now, if you're thinking about this buffer, you realize that they're completely incompatible, right? And the court in Luxembourg has actually ruled that this dragnet surveillance systems, this kind of data retention, these things are incompatible with the rule of law. They're incompatible with the notion of particularized suspicion, in fact. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and that also brings into the accountability that you... I mean, then you don't you have there, a stake. Yeah, that was nuts, man. Holy cow, he called them out for what they are. And I even said that to, uh, really fortuitous, I guess. I said that to um, to my, I was giving my friend's uh, son a golf lesson today. And we were just walking around and talking. And I'm, <clears throat> I mentioned something about Britain. And I was like, yeah, those guys are, uh, they're not nice people. And he's like, why do you say that? Because I brought up something about fish and chips. Because I told him that's what they called, um, I told him they called French fries chips over in Britain. And he thought that was pretty interesting. He's like, why do they call them that? And I'm like, I don't know. And he said, well, he's like, I don't like that. And he's like, I don't really like the British. I'm like, I don't really like them for a different reason. And he's like, well, why is that? And I'm like, yeah, just read some history books and you'll understand. They're kind of not nice people. So, um, Yeah, may- maybe the, the most violent and uh, despotic empire the world has ever known. But hey, you know, let's all pay attention to uh, Germany's Holocaust and ignore the Holocaust of India that lasted for almost 100 years. But hey, you know, you, it's like people don't, they think about the British Raj and they just think, oh, that, was a, that was a wonderful little uh, era in romantic history. No, they think and, of it, they think of it as... It, and the they, tea and spices. They can't think of anything other than Western culture from that. I think that the way that the history books are written, the way that you learn about it in in um, in grade school and in middle school in their history books, is that it's you don't learn that at all. Though there is, I mean, at least when I was growing up, Jake, we learned no European history. None. We had one. None. I think we had one class of European we had, history we had in like one, eighth grade. Um, we had one elective that you could take on European history, but I I took Wars of the twentieth twentieth century instead. How dare you? When I was in high school, which was also uh, a terrible PR propaga- move. Yeah, propagandized <laughs> ridiculousness. Yeah, the the fact that Edward Mandel House was not mentioned once in our discussion of World War One is a little uh, dumbfounding to me. Uh, that was a good reference. All right. Mm. 
But no. that, I thought it was interesting that he that he went to the connection of the Anglo-American establishment, Jake, because that's something that we've talked about because we're both kind of grounded in this, uh, in this research of verifiable conspiracy. Uh, and Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope is one of the greatest examples we have of verifiable conspiracy. And at the core of that, they call it the Anglo-American establishment for a reason, folks. But later on in that clip, someone from the audience, because they are in South Africa, a former you know, British colony. Oh, I'm sure uh, that was a great trip. S- still a member of the Commonwealth, yep. actually. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way... Something we don't talk about anymore. And no, yeah. nobody mentions still that anymore. Still a political entity. It's huge. Uh, and, st- and each of those... Uh, Votes are binding at the United Nations level. So, Isn't it 17 member states? Is that right? I want to say it's like in the 20s. Oh, man. I might have to go. Yeah, to the, I'm going to go to the web and check you. Go ahead. Keep going. Sure. But someone asks him essentially like, well, okay, is, is a monarchy really in power? And he goes through, you know, fairly modern examples of times that the Canadian uh, and Australian constitutions were directly subverted by the crown. Uh, in a in a in a referendum outside, completely outside Parliament and elected officials at all, so that that really goes to show you where true Ooh. power is. People in Catalonia are finding out where true power lies right now, in very much the same way. But Mr. Applebaum, for all of his work, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist with Der Spiegel. He was the one of the lead developers of the Tor project. Uh, Jacob Applebaum is now essentially a marked man because of alleged sexual abuse charges filed against him while he was working at the Tor Project. That sounds familiar. Uh, these claims are completely unfounded and have never been proven in a court of law, uh, yet the man has been uh, shunned, and he's now a societal outcast. He was already a refugee in the sense that he had to flee America. Now he's a man uh, without, without any friends, seemingly. And that's, this, this is what they do to you. If you get too close to the truth, I think maybe, maybe Jacob's convictions against the Anglo-American establishment and identifying it, it as such, I don't know, maybe that played into that decision. Well, here is a little bit of background. Uh, we were both extremely wrong. Mm. The British Commonwealth consists of a group of 53 member it's huge. states. huge, yeah. With uh, overall 2.328 billion people belonging to the British Commonwealth. Good game, guys. Good game. Well played. Is that bigger than America and China combined? Uh, I don't know. Maybe don't it is. Know. Because India is still included in the Commonwealth, is it not? I would assume so. I, I, would I believe assume that so. they are. I and the they... British. I I know for a fact that the Indian the Indian Central Bank is still directly controlled by the City of London and the Crown. So. Put that in your bricks pipe and smoke it. Why join the Commonwealth? Yeah, why would you want to join that? There's a lot of flags out there. A lot of flags. You know, I, I, there's a woman. She's since passed away. Her name is Joan Vion. Yep. She's got an excellent presentation on this that people should definitely listen to. She did a lot of research in the, in the mid-2000s about Agenda 21. This lady was just really ahead of her time. And, uh, but she went. She's the type of person who would go to all these conferences and, and pull the data. So... You know, she was uh, she she came out with a lot of great documentation, but one of the most verifiable pieces I think she found, aside from proving that demonstrably China was establishing multilateral institutions in the East for the cause of globalism, not to split with the West, as some people in alternative media like to fantasize about. Um, but her one of her biggest uh, discoveries, I think, was the Commonwealth as a political entity. One of its uh, 
foundational principles when you sign up is that you have to submit a binding United Nations vote uh, as a collective. Oh, wow. So, so when they vote, it's 53. Come on out. <clears throat> yeah. So, so it effectively delivers uh, very much the same way that America has complete veto power at the IMF currently. Yep. Uh, yeah, Great Britain has that uh, in the United Nations. So I know that you know a lot of the conspiracy theories of the 90s patriot movement are silly and unfounded, like you know the blue helmets beating down your doors. <laughs> but, the Uni- but the United Nations as a political entity, they do have great ambition for it. And if they could make it a unifying world body, they would if they could. Well, that's why uh, they always put it in, all, in video games. They put it in. They put it in movies where. It's all, everything is done at the UN. I mean, look at, um, look at Halo, one of my absolute favorite uh, video game genres forever. You are a, a United, Station, United Nations Marine Corps captain. Well, Jake, you're, you're watching Gundam Unicorn right now. That series literally starts yep. with the, Uni- the Federation logo is, uh, is the United Nations logo. <laughs> so they, they create a new, a new entity to contain both space and Earth. Uh, that sounds about right. That sounds yeah to right. to evolve from the UN, but of course you know that doesn't go very well uh, because people always want to rebel against collective power. I can't imagine why. Because uh, wait, wait, would it be something about autonomy? Nah. Well, since we're talking about the history books, I, I thought we would. This is a good time to play what the no agenda quote unquote whistleblower had to say. So this is interesting. One of our producers anonymously. Uh, I'm emailing you from an anonymous account. I'm sure you'll understand why. I work for a major textbook publisher and spend most of my time on text for various engineering and technical disciplines at the college level. You guys are spot on with your analysis of the collegiate textbook industry, and it's been a boom time with the gratuitous student loans that have increased college attendance rates. But here's the real scam, and I have to caveat that I, only, I can only really speak for engineering slash technical text. Almost every technical text has homework problems at the end of each chapter that are assigned by the instructor throughout the semester. While very, and I mean very little of the actual content is changed, you might see 10 pages of substantial, of real substantial change in a 300-page text. Every homework problem is changed to prevent students from using older editions. Frequently, they don't even bother to change the wording or structure of a problem, just the numbers. For example, if Sally had three apples and I ate one, how many does she have left? Maybe change to, if Sally had four apples and I ate three, how many does she have left? The goal, and it's openly discussed in our offices, is to do enough to make it impossible for the student to use any previous version to drive up sales. Yay! That's how they do it. So, um, get ready to go back to school, Josh. And well, I'm, once again, I'm that's very... not that's from the um, that's from the No Agenda podcast. I want to give credit where credit is due. Uh, no Agenda had a lot of influence on my show and how I run it, so I want to thank them for that. And also, uh, that was off their latest episode, and I don't remember the episode number. But uh, that's non-verified, so I, I don't know. We can only speculate. But of and, course, it happens. I mean, I've seen that occur certainly. Yeah. Uh, episode nine six nine, and yeah. you can find but, it at noagenda.com. They, they do the same thing for, um, I mean, it, it's one thing at the college level where it's a racket because students are paying for this individually. Well, that's where you but, said that was I mean, happening. Think of, think of where really big money is, though. It's, it's contracts for entire school districts oh, yeah. who have mm-hmm. to provide these books. Mm-hmm. I mean, that hap- it wasn't as frequent a basis when I was going through it, but I know for a fact that every two to three years, 
the same, they did the same thing with high school history textbooks at, for AP classes at the freshman collegiate level. Right. Uh, and those tests are standardized by the AP board. That's a national board. That's part of the, you know, the, what's it called? The National Collegiate Association or whatever sure. of America. Um, so it, it, it goes on at all levels. It, at, at some level, though, we can take solace in the fact that certain colleges, and of course it's only like hyper-elite colleges where you would, where the kids going there, money is no object to them for the most part anyways. Mm-hmm. But there is a shift now towards um, online open source mater- course materials that are developed by the professors teaching the classes. They release them out in the open and even make them accessible to non-students. That's cool. So, you know, even even these archaic, bloated educational institutions that, quite frankly, deserve to be out of business but have a monopoly on things and as fast as as fast as digital education is changing the game, I mean, I do think the university complex, unfortunately, will be with us for quite some time to come. Mm-hmm. It, it may always be a fixture for some people, if, if not, even as it is in its death throes. But at the very least, we can even have influence on that structure. People are so used to things being free and open now where they're demanding it of their universities and their educational system. Mm-hmm. And to, to their credit, certain people, especially in computer science programs and technical programming courses, a lot of these academics who are teaching these courses contribute to open source software themselves. So they inherently understand the ethos. Um, it's slow change, but maybe, maybe in the long run it'll be positive. It's also another way to disseminate propaganda, though, so you got to watch out for that. Absolutely. I just thought that was a fascinating read because you and I have talked about that. Find. And you and I have talked about that before. So let's, um, as promised, every episode we are going to do a, a documentary breakdown. This time we did a documentary breakdown of Adam Curtis. So I think I'm going to use this old intro music and see if we can do this. But okay. it was a fantasy. <laughs> That's right, we're taking a walk into the documentary forest. All right, so Hypernormalization, Josh, is written by Adam Curtis and directed by Adam Curtis, BBC guy. Um, tell us what you know about Adam Curtis, and, and then we'll start playing some clips. And Actually, let's get your thoughts on the documentary, and then we'll get in some clips. In the mid-'80s, there was a BBC documentarian He was called Adam Curtis. Adam Curtis became an establishment propaganda mouthpiece while playing the role of a contrarian. Absolutely. That was a a terrible Adam Curtis emulation, but Adam Curtis is this guy who makes uh, tremendously thought-provoking, very stylish, uh, wonderful pieces of art, really, that his, his core theme really is tying together disparate narratives mm-hmm. into a common thesis and his thesis is almost always wrong <laughs> the, the individual pieces that that get you there are always tr- very compelling right i think his conclusions for the most part that he draws are incorrect well they're very um, establishment they're yeah, very they're very acceptable establishment is. yes of course he's a, he's an establishment contrarian and he's gotten less contrarian and in, increasingly establishment as as time has gone on but at the same nevertheless there are certain documentaries of his that are just so fantastic even though they're laced with poison pills i would still recommend that people 
listen to them yep. and watch them. <clears throat> so here we go. This is a this is a part, and it's done really well. Like you said, tying uh, disparate narratives together. Uh, this is where he starts talking about the banks and what they were doing uh, in in the I believe it was the early eighties uh, in New York City. Seventies. Seventies. That's right. In nineteen seventy five, New York City was on the verge of collapse. For 30 years, the politicians who ran the city had borrowed more and more money from the banks to pay for its growing services and welfare. But in the early 70s, the middle classes fled from the city, and the taxes they paid disappeared with them. So the banks lent the city even more. But then they began to get worried about the size of the growing debt, and whether oh, no. the city would ever be able to pay it back. Then one day in 1975, the banks just stopped. Which is probably what's going to happen in the future here. But here, um, I'm going to. It's halfway through. What's the an, that's an interesting point, Jake. You know, do you know how many in the history of uh, Treasury bond auctions, how many failed bond auctions America has had? Um, can I take a swing at it? Sure. Zero. You got it. <laughs> you picked up the 50 SDRs this time. Woo-hoo! I'm going to go buy me a brand new. Soundboard. If if someone in the majors were batting a thousand, oh yeah, I, I'd I'd be. Would you think something fishy is going on? No, possibly not. Nah, it's all good. City held its regular meeting to issue bonds in return for the loans, overseen by the city's financial controller. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Today, the city of New York is offering for competitive bidding sale two hundred and sixty million tax anticipation notes, of which a hundred million will mature on June third, nineteen seventy-five. The banks were supposed to turn up at 11 a.m. But it soon became clear that none of them were going to appear. The meeting was rescheduled for 2 p.m. And the banks promised they would turn up. Oh, that's when you know a customer's effing with you. When the customer says, oh, well, let's just move it back to 2. I had some stuff come up. Uh, and then the, here, here comes. This is when you know the you're getting joshed around. The controller is that the offer which we had expected to receive and announce at 2 o'clock this afternoon, is now expected at 4 o'clock. Yeah, listen, man, we had lunch running a little long. We're, we're going to have to uh, we're gonna have to push this thing back. My, I got to pick up my kid. At, throw your joint. I got, listen, I got to go pick up my kid at the school. I'll be there at 4 to get those bonds, all right? Does this mean that uh, so far nobody wants those bonds? We will be making a further announcement at 4 o'clock, and anything further that I could say now I think would not advance the interest of the sale, which is now in progress. Does this mean that you have not been able to sell them so far today? Do you hear the actual journalist right there? A follow-up question? With real hard-hitting question? Jake, you got to understand. <laughs> There were a lot of wild things going on in the 70s. It was an era of disco and cocaine and heroin. You don't know what these people were on, really. That was an actual journalist. Holy cow, I've never... It's like seeing something in the wild. We will have a further announcement at 4 o'clock. What happened that day in New York marked a radical shift in power. The banks insisted that in order to protect their loans... They should be allowed to take control of the city. Oh, yeah, why not? The city appealed to the president, but he refused to help. So a new committee was set up to manage the city's finances. Out of nine members, eight of them were bankers. All right, good job. Good takeover, guys. Well done. Well played. You embezzled an entire city. 
Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, this is the tragic part about it, Jake, is that, you know, again, I find myself, and I'm sure you do too, between a rock and a hard place because I'm not a, I'm not for nationalism or globalism or corporatism. I'm not for any of those things. But at the same time, you know, if a city like a Detroit or an Atlanta or a New York has a publicly issued bonds uh, supported by a vibrant population, then technically, you know, the people still have some say in the destiny of their city. If you sell the city (laughs) to a bunch of corporate raiders, uh, then you have no input whatsoever. And they can choose to make your town a boom town or a bust town at any given time they want. I mean, this is, it's fortuitous because I was just talking about this with, uh, with my mom on the phone. She, she lives in Atlanta now. Mm-hmm. And she's asking about Detroit. She says, we're hearing all this stuff about the revitalization of Detroit. Is it real? It's not, by the way. If you're hearing these stories, this is, uh, this is a fantasy, as Adam Curtis <laughs> would say. I mean, the population's gone from just shy of, just shy of a million, 900,000 in 2000. To now, it's uh, near near five hundred thousand. Uh, Fifteen years later, wow. and this is a city that's built for five million people. It's a massive chunk of land that is now owned, for the most part, by Quicken Loans. <laughs> oh Lord! So yeah, this is Detroit has been wholesale purchased by Quicken Loans, and uh, you know what are they doing? They are uh, call, they are displacing regular people who still have the courage or are stuck in Detroit by building fancy new space or sports arenas and uh calling this a calling this a boom a boom a uh, uh the rebirth of detroit and aren't aren't you guys putting in a whole new sports complex down there in atlanta we already too? did man we already did taxpayer funded or at least yeah. portions of it it's okay though all right so um actually this is a good tag-along clip to what you were just talking about i could not identify with the political movements any longer she said all the manic activity in the streets In trying to join them, I felt overwhelmed by yet another form of bureaucracy. What she was describing was the rise of a new powerful individualism that could not fit with the idea of collective political action. Instead, Patti Smith and many others became a new kind of individual radical who watched the decaying city with a cool detachment. They didn't try and change it, they just experienced it. Look at that. Isn't that cool? I love that where, like, kids write all over the walls. That, to me, is neater than any art sometimes. Jose and Maria forever. <laughs> you, oh, there's a lot of things, like, when you pass by mo- big movie houses, maybe we'll find one. But they have li- little movie screens where you can see clips of, like, Z or something like that people watch it over and over i've seen people i've checked them out all day i've gone back and forth and they're still there watching the credits of a, of a movie because they don't have enough dough but it's some entertainment you know there you go there's some entertainment just like what you were talking about up in michigan we got to give these guys something to do yeah yeah well and it's g- these generational echoes man yeah like that. yep the hipsters of today essentially i mean some of them are just posh fakes but others are you know, actually, for the most part, growing up in a post-2008, post-industrial America where it's it's a depression time for young people these days. Agreed. Agreed. All right. So let's hear and, about... But you do find that they're not, they're not engaged in any meaningful sense. 
No, that's they really are just experiencing it and accepting it. They're as, experiencing as homelessness, Josh. <laughs> they're experiencing homelessness. No, that's they very, will be soon. Yeah, and it's, it's one of the reasons I took the clip is because the the, uh, the echoes of history, like you said. All right, so let's hear. Speaking of the echoes of history, let's hear about what our uh, president was doing at the time. Other people who did understand how to use this new power was Donald Trump. Trump realized that there was now no future in building housing for ordinary people because all the government grants had gone. But he saw that there were other ways to get vast amounts of money out of the state. Trump started to buy up derelict buildings in New York. And he announced that he was going to transform them into luxury hotels and apartments. But in return, he negotiated the biggest tax break in New York's history worth $160 million. It's pretty the good. The had to agree because they were desperate. And the banks, seeing a new opportunity, also started to lend him money. And Donald Trump began to transform New York into a city for the rich, while he paid practically nothing. I, I, left, in the, uh, I left in the creepy music. Oh, Kurt, Curtis also has great taste in music. <laughs> the creepy music for the underscore of Donald Trump. So now we've learned about what's happened in New York City. Now we move into um, now we move into what's happening abroad and some of the players that are involved. So this is a Henry Kissinger background. A little short. It's clip. a it's yeah. a great bit, but this is a perfect example of how Curtis is so sly because, of course, he doesn't mention like the Meyer Lansky connection to any of those sweetheart loans or how that came into play, Mm-mm. you know. But hey, it's all I right, man. There's only, there's only so much time in a three-hour documentary. Yeah, you just got to cut some stuff, man. The little, just the little idiosyncrasies and what do you like to call them? Minute details or, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. You don't need that. You don't need details, son. Just get the overall picture. Uh, speaking of overall picture, here's a Henry Kissinger's background. He had started in the 1950s as an expert in the theory of nuclear strategy, what was called the delicate balance of terror. Or mutually assured destruction. It was the system that ran the Cold War. Both sides believed that if they attacked, the other side would immediately launch their missiles and everyone would be annihilated. Kissinger had been one of the models for the character of Dr. Strangelove in Stanley Kubrick's film. Mr. President, I would not rule out the chance to preserve a nucleus of human specimens. It would be quite easy. <laughs> At the bottom of uh, some of our deeper minds, sir. Henry was not a warm, friendly, modest, jovial sort of person. What? He was thought of <laughs> as one of the more uh, anxious, temperamental, self-conscious, psychopathic, ambitious, Ooh, inconsiderate people at Harvard. Yeah, so that's your... Uh, there you go, guys. That's, that's who's developing foreign policy for you. Hooray! Come yeah. on out. And it's actually, to to be fair, his latest book is not bad. 
I'll give it to him. I, I understand what you're trying to do with your strategy. How to kill a million birds with one stone by Pretty, Henry Kissinger. I just talks about how the balance of power shifted and about how you have to have this. Nah, it's the same argument for the super state. And you always get it. Like there's some kind of interconnected. Oh, here it is. Kissinger's theory. This is it. This is good. To be honest with you, yeah. I believe. This is, uh, yeah, go ahead. I've not read a lot of Kissinger. I've read his, uh, what's the, his, uh, the abridged version of his book on, uh, mini nukes essentially oh the suitcase his, nukes his fame his famous i forget what the title of the book is nuclear war and nuclear proliferation and the yeah that one yeah it was a while ago honestly i've always just found brzezinski to be a far better tactician than poor heinz uh even though it is interesting that for as much as henry is always itching to get to war they do send him on a lot of important diplomatic missions at like the same time to china and stuff yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, let's hear about his strategy and his theories. I believe that with all the dislocations we know, now experience, there also exists an extraordinary opportunity to form for the first time in history a truly global society carried up by the principle of interdependence. I think he got society and government mixed up. Mm-hmm. That's he, easy to do sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, you need a society, but you know, you probably need a government to run that society. We act wisely. Why, yeah, go ahead. Why is a world of interdependence a good thing, I, dude? I mean, why you could say like cooperation or you know a brotherhood of nations. At least like dress it up a little bit. Interdependence just makes it sound like you're all just like. You're all injured men on a battlefield using each other for support. No, the the way that they position it and the way that they see the ideology is so if you make nation states interdependent, then nobody can run off and take their ball and go home. Then everybody's got to play. Does that make sense? Oh, to- I, I totally understand, and I, yeah. I interpret it the same way. My question is, why is he telling people that? Why is he using... Because he it sounds... So well, uh, who knows, man. Because inter- mo- most people don't speak double speak. <laughs> there we go. And revision, I think we can look back to all this turmoil as the birth pangs of a more creative and better system. If we miss the opportunity, I think there's going to be chaos. Oh yeah, well that'll that'll definitely happen because always with you know, the birth pains. Because you know, yeah, exactly, always birth pains, and you know, destabilizing the uh, the uh, Arab world. That's that's probably a better way to go. Because that that's a that's a forced labor, is what that is, Jake. You know, you just got to pass through it all with right, bombs. I've got a lot of clips. Which all right? So I only only want to play like two more clips. Here's what I here's the titles, and you tell me which ones we're gonna play. Uh, Rift between Assad and the West, uh, the massacre, the Syrian uh, Assad bombs with Hezbollah, uh, Marco Barlow and cyber cyberspace, the cyberpunks, and the birth of suicide bombing. Uh, let's let's do the su- the cyberpunk one. I mean, because honestly, the the Syria bit. On this documentary, yeah, we can, can, yeah, yeah, can be summed up pretty easily. Yeah, we can do that. All right, let's let's close the serious stuff out, and we'll do. Hey, let's do the Barlow and cyberspace, and then the cyberpunks. Yeah, the basic theme of the Sir- the poison pill Curtis gives you in the Syria bit is that he wants you to believe that uh, for some reason, uh, you know, Assad truly does want to glass the West and is a genuine threat. It, it parts of it are you know an overt cry for war almost. Yes, absolutely. So here we go, Michael Barlow and cyberspace. Now, he organized what he called cyberthons 
to try and bring the cyberspace movement together. Well, you know, the Cyberthon, as it was originally conceived, was uh, was supposed to be uh, the 90s equivalent of the acid test. Uh, and we had thought to involve some of the same personnel. You and I yeah. and Timmy should sit down and talk. Okay, that's good. And it immediately acquired a, uh, a financial quality or commercial quality that was initially a little unsettling to an old hippie like me, but as soon as I saw it actually working, then I thought, ah, well, if you're going to have an acid test for the 90s, money better be involved. Instead of having a glass barrier that separates you, your mind, from the mind of the computer, the computer pulls us inside and creates a world for us. Incorporates everything that could be incorporated. It incorporates experience itself. Barlow then wrote a manifesto that he called a Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. It was addressed to all politicians, telling them to keep out of this new world. It was going to be incredibly influential, because what Barlow did was give a powerful picture of the Internet, not as a network controlled by giant corporations, but instead as a kind of magical, free place, an alternative to the old systems of power. It was a vision that would come to dominate the internet over the next 20 years. So that's um, that's the Michael Barlow. And then I'm here, let me play the cyberpunks and then we can sum up the entire uh, documentary. I don't want to drag this out any further. Now, TRW had adapted their computers to run a new system, that of credit and debt. Their computers gathered up the credit data of millions of Americans and were being used by the banks to decide individuals' credit ratings. The beginning of the end. The hackers broke into the TRW network, stole Barlow's credit history, and published it online. The hackers were demonstrating the growing power of finance. How the companies that ran the new systems of credit knew more and more about you, and increasingly used that information to control your destiny. And the system that was allowing this to happen were the new giant networks of information connected through computer servers. The hackers were questioning whether Barlow's utopian rhetoric about cyberspace might really be a convenient camouflage, hiding the emergence of a new and growing power that was way beyond politics. So the whole theme of this documentary, to sum it up, and then Josh, I'll get your final thoughts on it, is that it's a changing of power, it's a changing of the power structures, it's a changing of everything, and you need to be aware of the change and what's about to occur, and everything is getting outside of the realm of politics, which if if you've been following the show for long enough, and you've understood my journey uh, from being an activist to being uh, not an activist anymore, because Josh and I... Uh, we've talked about that in the past, and it's just, um, I mean, I'll still do activism, but it doesn't uh, It doesn't do the trick. Politics doesn't do the trick because we are in a post-political world. As Josh uh, so eloquently said, when Donald Trump was elected president, it's a post-political president for a post-political world. So, Josh, your final thoughts on hyper-normalization. That was a really good sum up, summation. Uh, and... It's a compelling documentary, especially the parts about, uh, 
you know, the corporatized transhuman world that we live in. Uh, and because, you know, it ends on this note of just like, essentially the futility of cyberspace that everyone is connected to it all this is all at once as McLuhan said but and you can toss your voice out there at any given time but what are the odds that anyone is going to listen and in and with the futility of all that and the loneliness of it and he ends essentially by playing this random clip of these little girls that uploaded some video of them dancing in the backyard on youtube and just like who would essentially begging the question like well who would watch this if i didn't put it in front of your face right now yeah Uh, is it's an interesting way to end the documentary but the aspects about the corporatization of the net and and how it's far more of a dark vision like uh earlier in the film he mentions uh you know William Gibson's Neuromancer film which is a very dark sci-fi version of the future it's like heavily it heavily influenced Blade Runner and the Matrix it's a, it's a good book people should check it out but the other part that weaves the, that narrative together Jake is kind of what you're talking about the, the futility of politics because it weaves that narrative with uh, the hippies who essentially you know became disillusioned with activism and politics uh, and instead chose to be silent observers or even join the corporate world and then those hippies you know kind of resurrected that vision in cyberspace and you're almost seeing echoes of this Jake in that the libertarian movement of today did the same thing has really abdicated themselves in, in believing now that political solutions, trying with Ron Paul, is not the answer. Certainly, the direct activism is very difficult to get people interested in important issues. Maybe it always has been. Mm-hmm. You know? no, I would agree with that. I, I would. It's, it's tough to get people motivated to do something that's out of their comfort zone. And getting out, and even so, something as small as holding a sign or talking to people walking down the street or handing out a flyer, uh, it gets you out of your comfort zone if you're not normally used to doing things like that. I was luckily trained in outdoor to door sales, so walking up to a stranger is not nearly as intimidating for me as it is intimidating for other people. So that's something that you have to take into account as well. You know, people are going to be people at the end of the day. They have their own, uh, they have their own vices and their own things that they're comfortable with, and that was the biggest problem I saw with with actual political activism is that it would be the same 10 of us every time and we couldn't get anybody new because that's like adding something to their regiment that they just didn't want to have happen even though they probably did believe in our cause but they just didn't want to add that oh that just seems like a lot of work people have lives i mean that's the that's the shame of dolls like you have to participate in the rat race and you know how many people really want to spend their free time doing things like this but yeah that's the Curtis documentary hints at that, certainly, but also how much of it was a failure and that they'd really abdicated most of their influence by disregarding politics entirely. Uh, and I, I also don't believe in political solutions, so it's, it's, hard, it's a hard you know, circle to square at times. But they also note that you know, all these hippies essentially believed in the open power of the, in, the early Internet to liberate people. And you're you're seeing similar things, Jake, with the with fintech and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, where so many libertarians, especially who are concerned about the way the Federal Reserve system and recognize that works and recognize that the monetary system is the heart of a lot of our woes, have now thrown their weight behind you know technological possibility, as have we. But at the same time, you know, I guess maybe we could talk about it. Do you think it's different this time? <laughs> 
that, that, that all-important quote because with the internet, it, it was very clear, even though TCP IP and these kind of things were open protocols and remain so, even though they're manipulated, mm-hmm. it was a DARPA-financed network. It was a creation of the military-industrial complex, uh, and it was sold off to these corporations to run it for profit. And people knew that going in. Can you say the same about cryptocurrencies? N- not necessarily. Is it different? Uh, I think time will tell, man. I think we're too early in the game. The acceptance, yeah. the acceptance level is is somewhat creeping in. That's why they want legislation to uh, limit Bitcoin transactions. They want to have oversight of cryptocurrency transactions because you might be a criminal. Once again, this gets into the big principle of liberty that you and I talk about a lot. You can't just arrest me because you think I look like a criminal or because I talk like one or because I might be one. That's not yeah. grounds that's not grounds for, you know, r- removing my property from my home, which would be my body. You can't do that. But we're trying to get into a position to where the demonization is starting because they do see it as a threat or at least as a way to counteract the nice little implosion that they may have coming for everyone. And I'm not trying to be a doomsdayist. It's just natural that the market has to correct at least 20 to 30%. And of course you have, you know, doomsday sky is fallers out there that are saying that it's going to go 45 to 60%. It may. After what they did after 2008, I didn't think that they were going to be able to bail out the banks and then have the bankers turn around and literally hand out bonuses. And then nobody gives a shit. Oh, I get a yeah. millennial. I get a millennial coin. <laughs> I re- I rarely cuss on the show. Well, but that was Jake, ridiculous. The terrifying aspect about QE and all of its ramifications is that most of the QE money hasn't even been no, very little of it has been spent into the organic economy. No, it's, it's not in my pocket, it's not in your pocket, nope. it's not in, you know, the middle class's pocket. They're using it for large development funds and, you know, for corporate mostly corporate share buybacks are giving it to companies to buy their own stock to juke equities and send the market higher. But the crazy thing, Jake, is that, you know, it's, it's only a fraction, a small percentage of the money that's been given to the commercial banks has actually even made it into the hands of these corporations to do share buybacks yet, or even in the international market. So they don't have to print another dollar to keep this rally artificially going for a very long time, which to me, it almost just looks like, you know, whether or not the trigger is here or it's, or it's in the East, because China is certainly, people watch, watch these, uh, these latest, uh, these latest round of party talks and five-year plans coming out of China right now, uh, they're in dire straits. And the reason there's a good reason why they uh, have shut down all cryptocurrency exchanges at this particular time. Because they don't want competition. Because they're they very under- worried about capital flight. Yeah, they know that. They know that as soon as their currency starts to tank, then people will move it into some other asset that isn't losing money day by day. And now yeah. whatever whatever that asset may be, at least the smart people will. The other people will just sit there and go, "What's going on? Why can't I buy stuff?" Yeah. Well, but Jake, to kind of wrap this segment up, I guess, you know, I, I, you've seen All Watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace, that yeah. series, right? Yeah. Uh, which is a fan, another fantastic Curtis documentary series. But it, he's very down on this idea of techno libertarianism. Yeah, I agree. It's a common theme throughout Curtis's work, at least it has been recently. And I agree with so much of what he's saying because, you know, these, these systems are inherently technocratic. And they are inherently of the state and of the corporatocracy. But at the same time, you know, we have to take these technologies and run with them to the best of our ability because the alternative is what the hippies did in hypernormalization. And also in um, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace, they go to the woods, yep, they become they... detached viewers, 
They try to put it out of their mind and just experience it. And ultimately, what does that get you? It, it gets you, you know, wasted time and wasted potential. Uh, whereas, you know, you could have been using this technology to your benefit. You know, it's one that I like to use all the time, Jake, but it's like, uh, you know, SQL was invented by the CIA and Oracle, its subcontractor in the 70s. And it was invented, you know, so banks and the CIA and corporate America could all keep their books the same. And a lot of that reason was because they were shuffling around a lot of cash, you know, and <laughs> digital assets that they were readily digitizing in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. Right. And, and they, they were setting up the, the infrastructure for modern drug arms, human money laundering through the banking system. That same technology, SQL, is also what we use to run databases on our WordPress websites that talk about, you know, very important issues uh, exposing these people. Right. So are you going to swear off SQL because it's, because it's of the enemy? Or are you going to use these technologies to the best of our, your ability? And, you know, Curtis is down on this notion that you can, that it's even possible to use these things for, for good. But I would just note that he, he reads uh, What's-His-Nuts, um, the, the manifesto of the Internet. Oh, that, oh, hold on a second. I forget the cat's name. The one we just played a clip of? Yeah. Uh, Michael Barlow. Michael Barlow, there you go. He, he plays Michael Barlow's Declaration of Internet Independence, where Barlow's coming hat in hand, saying, oh, please, government, don't regulate us. That'd be bad. It'll kill innovation. <laughs> but at the same time, you have the cypherpunks that aren't in this documentary. But cypherpunks like Timothy May putting out uh, things like the cypherpunk manifesto uh, and the idea of pirate utopias... And they're, they're fundamentally saying something completely different. They're, they're saying, look, if the Internet is to be free and open, then you have to take that freedom for yourself. You have to fight for it. Yeah, uh, agreed. No, one, no one's going to give it to you. And they, they believe that you could use radical you know, new cryptography to, to build out some of these systems. And well, we're seeing early promise of that. Well, you know, so, and we're also seeing early promise of the, of the uh, regulation of the internet. So, I mean, you remember this clip from a couple of podcasts ago, people that haven't heard it. This is what happened um, <clears throat> in the Senate. Uh, let's see, what was the date on this? I can't see it. Do you want to finish that comment before I play this? I just thought it was oh, a good no, place. Go, go, right, go with it. Go. Here we go. Including Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, and Charter Communications, inviting each of them to come and testify before our full energy and commerce committee. Yeah, we'll just have all the big swinging you-know-whats come in and tell us about how we need to do this to shut down competition. It's time for Congress to legislate the rules of the Internet and stop the ping-pong game of regulations and litigation. All right, so there you go. It's time for Congress to regulate the Internet. Not going to happen, guys. Anyway, it may happen for a little while, but um, as soon as people people that grew up with the real Internet will not want a closed-source Internet. They just won't. And they will, they will go and buy hacked machines or use hacked browsers or do whatever they have to do in order to get that Internet back. I, no I I believe now maybe humans are inherently yeah. lazy, which is one of my other working theses, so or thesis. So well, one of the things that Adam Curry always says on No Agenda, or he's mentioned several times, and I think it's a, a great point when he talks about how AOL was like the centralization of the internet, 
and then you know it, it was it was all AOL mail and AOL messenger and AOL homepages and uh, it was a, a corporatization of this organic culture yeah and then that that imploded and and then in the early 2000s through the late 2000s really there was a there was a free and open internet again where people were part of these disparate communities uh, and that's really the internet that I grew up with and the internet that you grew up with was also that pre AOL internet so we both witnessed you know these two eras of uh, an, uh, an, a more organic web. And now we see the set re-centralization of that through large services like Google. Facebag. And, you know, so, Facebag, social media providers. But we're also seeing the implosion of them steadily, I think, with the rise of you know, the, the, the mind-warped social justice warrior mentality and, and the overt you know, censorship, fascistic censorship of these platforms because... You know, these, these platforms like YouTube and Facebag, these are built with public money. And people don't like to talk about the InQtel connections or the four-star general connections or the DARPA connections to any of these companies. But they are essentially like uh, they're intelligence agencies masquerade and defense contractors masquerading as publicly traded companies. Yeah, and remember, no, yeah. they, uh, Facebook, the FBI Lockheed director... Martin, same thing. Yeah, the FBI director had a uh, office on the fourth floor of Facebook, so... Hey, I'll just go to my office. Yeah, don't worry about it, guys. Everything's fine. But hopefully we're starting to see a backlash. And I, too, Jake, I would like to think that people would be up in arms. And maybe even, maybe I'm signing our own death warrant by wishing for this. But I almost hope they try just so we can see what comes out of it. Oh, you mean just let let them try to regulate the Internet and then see what happens? And see if, you know, alternate pops up and we start running completely decentralized, you know, uh, services over new protocols. On the blockchain. And maybe even no open way. source hardware someday. No, stop. Stop it. Stop it. Well, hey, I, I know it's, that's, that's a pipe dream, but I'd like to hope that we can lay the groundwork for it while we're still alive, maybe. I, I would hope so, too, man. I mean, that's the goal, isn't it? We were... Or at least it was for me. I was looking for a way to make an impact. I have all this knowledge. I know that there's a lot of stuff that you're not being told. And I thought it was my duty as a human being to go around and, you know, to my other fellow camp followers or, you know, fellow travelers or whatever you want to call these people, um, people that you interact with. Just, hey, um, what they're telling you guys isn't really what's happening Here's kind of what's happening. And I think we should all talk about this and have a rational debate. Uh, rather than just run around like uh, like Alex and you know uh, say my my hair is you know my I'm Kim Jong is gonna blow us all up or we got to nuke him or whatever it is this week to get uh, ratings. Winston. Say what now? Winston, the proles will never rebel. I'll stop. You know, I mean, I think that Alex really wants to try to get to to this point. Is full what- gear, full power, automatic, maximum, more of it now. That's what he wants out of Trump. I'm that's what pretty the, that's what the AI is going to do when it connects to the blockchain, and you're a blockchain, Jake. We're all just blockchains. We're going to have blockchains put on us, and then it's going to be over. So blockchains right. on your body. That's it. Uh, that's it for the show, man. That's all I got. Josh, you got any other words for the for the listeners? Oh no, it was fun as always. Uh, email Jake, by the way. We are not cattle at gmail.com. Yep. If you if you found this podcast through Stateless Homesteading, I'm kinda interested to see how many people are still at my blog because I, I don't use any Google Analytics. I don't use any tracking software at all on that platform. How so dare I, you? 
I have you, no idea. How are you except gonna, for server server statistics, which are notoriously unreliable? How are you going to advertise to your slaves? I mean, your your listeners. How are you yeah, going to sell have, out your listeners, Josh? Well, I have an anti-business model at that website. Uh, our our more for-profit venture, CryptoHero.info. Mm-hmm. Check that out too, because there's a lot of new content going up on that one. Yep. Those are the two places you can find me. And I guess just it's always a blast, Jake. Thanks for listening, uh, everyone out there, and. Uh, I don't know. Play us out, man. All right. That sounds great, man. Thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, share the podcast with people you know, people you love, and people you like. And if you want to write us, you can uh, write us here at wearenotcattle at gmail.com. Peace, love, and liberty. And read a book, people. Preferably tragedy and hope, but read a book. Tragedy and Hope 101 by Joe Plummer. If you don't want to read the long version. Who's got time for first first-hand sources anyway? It's a good cliff notes. Agreed. That's it, everybody. We'll see you next time. Look for the podcast. Follow us on Twitter. 